Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is another episode of the focus, All We Mean, an ongoing discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning making are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning with it or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act as much as it is why we do. And so the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life, our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with or at disconnecting from one another. The format of All We Mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is how the hypothesis means. And for that, I'm going to read excerpts from the book Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis from Reproducibility Crisis to Big Data by one of my guests today on the show, Bradley Alger, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. And below in the show notes, you'll also find a link to an interview that Bradley and I conducted about just that book. But first to these guests of mine, I welcome back Bill Cope and Mary Galanzis, both professors at the University of Illinois, and of course, Bradley himself, Professor Emeritus, Department of Physiology, University of Maryland School of Medicine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to All We Meet. Hi, Daniel. And nice to meet you, Mary and Bill. Likewise. Good to be here. Well, happy to have all of you on too. Um, to get to these, uh, to, to the excerpt from the book, it's an assortment of passages that Bradley himself has selected, knowing the topic, how the hypothesis means. So I'll just read the page number and then the short selection. First, we're on page 32. Science aims to give a complete, comprehensive, accurate accounting of nature, how things are, how they got to be that way, and how they will be in the future. And it seeks this information for all things and events everywhere in the universe and for all times past, present, and future. In short, science wants to know everything about nature and it wants to be absolutely certain of its knowledge. This is truth with a capital T, the shining ideal. Of course, achieving 100% certain truth is just not going to happen. Both logic and physical laws prevent it. To one extent or another, we must be eternally uncertain. Just a few pages later, we get, A hypothesis is a putative explanation for actual observations. It makes or entails predictions, but is not itself a prediction. A prediction is a forecast of how some future event will play out. We test predictions directly with experiments that show whether they are true or false. We test hypotheses indirectly by testing their predictions. By making predictions, the hypothesis reveals exactly what it does and does not mean. A few pages later again. 
Conjectures and refutations is a form of trial and error reasoning that encapsulated the fundamental procedure of science. You conjecture a hypothesis to explain an aspect of the world, try to refute or falsify it, and if you can't refute it, then you may tentatively conclude that you've discovered a fact. And lastly, very deep into the book, around page 300, we have... Our brain is an organ that is designed in large part to help us make sense of the world by constantly generating hypotheses about what is going on in and around us. Right. End quote. So um, we have this interesting assortment, which touch very much on our topics today as well and give us important definitions, uh, particularly of the hypothesis itself. Um Maybe I'll hand the stage over to our guest today, who is Bradley Alger, who has also selected these. And I'm sure there was some reasoning behind this or some motivation for that particular selection. Uh, yes, well, uh, thanks very much, uh, uh, Daniel. I, I, I thank uh, Daniel for allowing me to do this and uh, Mary and Bill for your indulgence in putting up with this. I'm, I'm the new kid on the block here. And since uh, much of this is, is well beyond my depth and out of my, uh, my league, and especially I'm a neuroscientist, it was by trade. Um, so there are a number of things that I uh, would like to discuss first or just ask you about. And uh, because, in fact, the premise of this the discussion so far has been on uh, human meaning, human society and the exchanges between humans about meaning, and this is, as you uh, lay out in your book uh, very comprehensively, uh, this is a highly complex topic. And although you've done a masterful job of breaking it down into uh, different categories and, and uh, processes and so on, um, it's still quite complicated. And so when I first encountered this, I, I thought maybe it would be helpful to do a, a real sciencey kind of thing. Um, when a scientist is, is confronted with a really, really complicated topic, uh, what they try to do, and I have, I'm still getting used to the singular they, so forgive me, um, is, is to take a reductionist approach. And that is what we'd like to do is look at the system, very, very complicated system, see if we can find a simpler system that recapitulates uh, some at least of the properties of the more complicated one, and see if we can learn from the simple system that would help us understand the complicated one. Anyway, that's the premise of this. So, so in order to... Um, Start out. What I thought I'd do is is uh, is is look at that uh, the the primacy of the human in this, and try to relax that standard. So I'll do that by means of a, of a parable, if you'll allow me. And the parable goes like this: that I'm sitting in my living room with my dog Fido, and around mid morning I get up and I go into the kitchen, and uh, Fido follows me. I take down the can of dog food, the can opener. I open the can. I put, I get uh, Fido's bowl. I put the food into his bowl. I turn around and Fido has been watching me the whole time. Um, is, is, is watching and I say, sit. And Fido does, you know, he gets down at his haunches, puts his little four paws out. I say, speak. He gives a little courteous yip and I put the food bowl down and he digs in. Now, just at that time, Boopsy, the kitty cat, comes in from the other room. Now, Boopsy, uh, heads over to Fido's bowl, and at some point, Fido stops eating and looks at her, and Boopsy pauses for a second, and then uh, she marches boldly on, continuing towards the food bowl, and at that point, uh, Fido growls a bit and then a bit louder, and Boopsy retreats. Now, that's the parable. That's the end of the parable. <laughs> now, I think 
what I'm, I'm going to argue, obviously, is that what we've all witnessed, and certainly any pet owner would agree, has been an exchange of meaning, really meaningful uh, information, a real true participatory exchange, as you've described it, but there's, there's not, not a human in sight. There's no essential human uh, element in this. And so that lets me, uh, and, I, and I think you'll agree, or, or will you, I mean, that this, we, we've seen the exchange of apparent meaning between these non-human animals. What do you think? Um, well, well, yes, insofar as we live in this biological continuity as human beings are not, you know, like, I mean, um, maybe the quality of that interaction is, is less. So there are kind of two sides to this from my point of view. One is there's continuity um, uh, there. And of course, human beings can do a lot more in terms of the exchange of meaning than, than animals can. But the other side of the coin is a lot of we, what we do meaningfully is also animal-like. We, 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 um, we, you know, from the point of view of multimodality, it's not just language that mediates our meetings. We, we watch other people's positions in space, kinesthetic body, and, and those things mean for us as much as the highly abstracted meaning systems that we have in systems like language or mathematics, for right. example. Right, and that's what I was, I was going to use that to, to get into this, because what I'm looking for uh, is is the what I want to call the the real nugget of meaning, the core of meaning. What is this central aspect of meaning to which we, uh, as animals, and I will claim all the way back to the very simplest animals and maybe even beyond, I uh, have been uh, adapted uh, through evolution to uh, detect meaning. That is, and, and meaning in a sense then is uh, stimuli, environment, events, objects, uh, other uh, uh, organisms that. Uh, whose behavior in one way or another has implication, has consequences for us. And uh, this is a meaning you, you uh, I think, touch on uh, in, your, uh, in your book. You, you mentioned the meaning is a process of making sense, making sense an integral part of our uh, experience of life as we see things, feel things, express things, plan things in ways that could have effect. And so I want to I focus on that aspect of could have effect as what, for me, and I think uh, Boopsie and, and Fido, is really the essence of, of meaning because that tells us then what uh, how meaning came to be. It, I think it answers a, at least part of the question about how meaning to, it came to be, and, and the answer here would be that it, um, it helped us survive. Uh, it gave us the information uh, that we needed uh, to understand, predict, uh, control nature, to find food, avoid danger, uh, find mates, and so on, appropriate the species. And so this, in a way, is is what I want to see as uh, the the essence of meaning. And this is, of course, not to 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 downplay any aspect of it. But what I'd like to suggest is that this original sense of meaning, which is something consequential for uh, survival, uh, then was it was sort of accepted, if if you like that word. And that uh, so then uh, detecting meaning uh, allows us to do a whole lot of things which are maybe not strictly necessary for our survival. So we can create. Uh, novels, we can, uh, uh, you know, participate in the arts, we can do all sorts of things uh, for their sort of rewarding aspects. We can exchange meaning in these uh, different fora uh, without without having the same uh, consequences. Uh, but I'll come back to that, by the way, because that is a very important thing. Um, in any case, I did want to emphasize that even in the level of my little animal friends, uh, we see multimodality at work, right? I mean, so uh, I moved into the kitchen. Uh, I got down uh, the cans of food. I made noises. I operated the can opener. Uh, Fido responded to the sights, the sounds, the motions, my voice, 
uh, the food bowl, uh, the odors, and so on and so forth. Uh, similarly, Boopsy, on her own, uh, detected all of these same kinds of things and carried out her same actions. And, uh, and then they, uh, as we saw, they, they participated in an exchange of meaning solely between each other somehow. And uh, we can infer, uh, as we do with human beings, we can infer whatever's going on in Boopsy and Fido's minds. Uh, it involved representation. Uh, there was certainly communication in their actions, their behavior towards each other, and apparently uh, interpretations of, of what, was, what was going on. So um, that, that, was, that was sort of uh, one of my starting points here, and I'm going to come back and, and use that in, in a second or two, but uh, you know, I should stop talking for a minute. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll add to that as well before I hand yeah. over to Mary. There's one thing which we consider, which is at an even higher level than all those things, representation, communication. So we talk about this idea of meaning being motivated. It's being driven by interest, right? Um, um, and so, which is even philosophically, you know, uh, the, 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 the goalposts even further. And, you know, one of the things about um, um, your two animals, Fido and Whoopsie or whatever her name is. Whoopsie, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that they are willful creatures. They're not just creatures um, who um, impassively do things. Their relationship to the world is willful. It's inference-laden. So that's another uh, even higher level of continuity, just to, to, to agree with you and extend a little bit. What I say? And, and yes, I've, I've, you know, since you want to uh, simplify the way we engage, or I think you said detect meaning, if, if you read our work, you would have seen that we have actually tried to offer ordinary people, you know, a way of parsing, you know, the little parable that you just had across across a number of dimensions from the functions that are involved and the modes, of course, and multimodality is an important part of, you know, our theory of understanding meaning. It has always been like that because um, meaning making was in a static way before language was produced, you know, with touching and moving and smoke and etc but we think in every situation particularly that situation you ask a series of questions you know uh to your parable to your little narrative what was going on uh who is involved what's the structure of the relationship what is the context and what is the interest so we have to have that kind of multiple view for interpreting that meaning because it can change given the the who's involved right but again i'm trying to get i i realize that one can parse it in this way and analyze it in this way and these are you know your five functions of, of meaning are, are relevant to apply to any situation but again i think if if we look at it uh from this very basic point of view for one thing i would say that the original function of the meaning was uh, to serve the purpose actually of the hypothesis which i'll get to which is to help us understand the world and that is Really, the, uh, the 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 initial uh, the core function I claim of of meaning, even though we can we can certainly look at it in all these more sophisticated ways, and meaning has itself changed. But I'd like to suggest that there's even a more practical way of, of thinking of the utility of this approach. And uh, for that, I would like to uh, I'll use I'll use uh, Mary's example of Abu Ghraib. Uh, grave, uh, in which you know the the photograph of the prisoner having been mistreated uh, turned out to be enormously more uh, influential in changing people's behavior than all of the the text that had been written about it. <clears throat> now, of course, vision 
is one of the uh, very earliest, most primitive senses. And vision is very uh, directly motivating. For example, and actually there's a nice quote by uh, Thomas Huxley, I think it was in the middle 1800s. And Huxley thought of human beings as uh, what he called conscious automatons. Uh, that is, we, we were, uh, consciousness is sort of laid on top of our, our other uh, animal abilities. And so, for instance, he uses the example, he says, uh, it's not right to say that we are running from the bear because we're afraid of the bear, but rather we're afraid of the bear because we're running from the bear. And what that, what that uh, tells you is, is that it emphasizes that evolutionarily what was selected for, what was important from an evolutionary sense, was quickly getting out of the neighborhood of the bear rather than formulating any kind of, uh, uh, you know, conscious realization of, you know, my, oh my gosh, look at that, uh, what species of bear is it? and so on, and, and getting out of the way. It's just running and then and then reacting. And of course, we've all had that experience of, of uh, you know, starting to stumble downstairs and immediately putting your arms out before you're aware of what's going on. So the, the, um, the, the Abu Ghraib uh, example then, uh, is is an illustration. If, if I might, just just for listeners' oh, sure, sake, sure. Uh, no, just for listeners' sake, uh, the book that that Bradley keeps referring to is Making Sense by B Bill and Mary. Um, it, it just may be confusing because we have this other book also on the table, The Defense of the Hy um, Scientific Hypothesis. But at the moment, we're focusing a little bit more on the making sense. Right. This is so, and uh, so, and this was uh, Mary's uh, example from a podcast or two ago. Uh, and again, there was this, uh, you know, this horrible treatment of prisoners in this prison called Abu Ghraib. Uh, the prisoners uh, were being, uh, uh, you know, abused and mistreated. And thousands of words have been written calling attention to this problem. They had almost no effect on the international society. Uh, photographs were taken, however, of one prisoner or prisoners, uh, uh, you know, subjected to some of these uh, awful conditions. And immediately everyone was galvanized. And the point that I was making was uh, to illustrate a little bit what I call the, the primacy of certain kinds of meaning and certain kinds of information flow. Uh, because, uh, again, from Huxley's example, I would say that, well, uh, we've been adapted for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, this connection between uh, the visual sense, that is, uh, you know, light patterns of light striking light sensitive self, uh, and real visceral reactions, real actual body motions. Uh, in a way that that text, uh, speech, and, and images of, of different kinds, artificial ones, uh, were only laid on many, many centuries later. And of course, uh, you would expect maybe to have less of an influence. And I was just uh, thinking about the... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not so sure about the hierarchy. Like you just pivoted a little while ago to the hypothesis of survival. But all creatures have... Uh, uh, instincts to survive. It's not unique to humans. Oh, of course not. I, that's, that's exactly my point, in fact. Yes. So uh, I was, um, I mean, isn't it yeah, to be, isn't it meaning making to be rather than su only survive? <laughs> right? right. But let, let me just say um, something else. So, yes, there's something about consciousness of meaning which applies to creatures uh, like like dogs but doesn't apply to plants so maybe but ne nevertheless maybe some trees talk to each other i don't think we are told that we'll yeah no well the, no the, the very important question is actually where to draw the line yes. but another thing one would have to argue um without wanting to get into the 
ambiguities of intelligent design is that there are meanings imminent in the material world which um, which are not meanings that are made by that world, but world meanings which are discoverable in that world. So there are a number of important distinctions we need to make here. One is, I, yes, what, I hope we come back to that notion of imminent meaning uh, and meaning in invisible, impossible worlds later as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's exactly right that we must come. I want us to go. That's what we were thinking. We, we wanted to come to as well. So let's get to that. So, but in other words, let's stick with the animal thing for the moment. The question is, what's the borderline of consciousness? And maybe the borderline is um, uh, the first. And you, I think you might have hit it here, Bradley. I, you know, it, um, it is the first creatures able to see the first vision of some sort. Now, that vision might be rudimentary, a rudimentary sensing of what's around you. I, I don't think plants do that in a, in a meaningful kind of way. So the question is, where does consciousness begin? And then we're in this continuity where we might even want to argue that human consciousness is not massively qualitatively different from your dog and cat consciousness. It's quantitatively different. Right, but I'm going to argue actually more more provocatively than that that consciousness, <clears throat> many scientific experiments agree with this. Consciousness really is kind of an add-on. Uh, it's not uh, the primary motive force for an awful lot of things we do. And I'll just use an example of uh, one from your book. Uh, and you point out how fraught speech is, how often we, quote, make mistakes in speech. Uh, oh, I didn't mean to say that, or you'll be talking along and... Uh, you know, the question is, where do the words come from? They just seem to be available uh, when you when you need them. You access them. They're in your brain. But I at least am not reading off any f fixed uh, you know, script or a teleprompter or anything. I, I'm just talking. And we know it's unconscious because every now and then uh, we come to something like, uh, oh, good old what's her name? I just saw her the other day. I, I know where I met her. Uh, you know, I remember, but I don't know her name. Right. I mean, all of this stuff I and mean, her name somehow was was not linked tightly enough with all of these other images of our friend there. Uh, and so we, we get stuck or we, we're groping for a word. What does that mean? Groping for a word? I mean, groping how? I mean, what what I would suggest that means is that it's it's not available to consciousness. It's clearly in your head. Um, if you had time to write it out, you would write it fluently. And that's the difference that you you uh, one of the differences between speech and, and writing, as you point out in your book. Um, but, but sure, uh, unconsciousness uh, in, in humans plays a huge role. And, and by the way, I, I meant to extend, and, and to you mentioning plants, uh, I think Mary was disagreeing and I would disagree as well because there are lots of light-sensitive plants. I mean, the sunflowers really do turn with the sun. Uh, and, and unicellular organisms uh, gravitate, it's called a, a, a tropism, they have phototropism, they gravitate towards light. So it, there's, there's, no, there's no very clear dividing line. Uh, but, uh, but when it comes to meaning, if I might just weigh in for a second, when it comes to meaning, I would say on the there are clearly different levels of consciousness. I mean, I would even argue, uh, being a dog lover and a dog owner, that <laughs> there's a level of consciousness that's different between that cat and that dog out there as well. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the really important point for for our discussion now is that I think we can tag something that's important for understanding what, um, let's say, the meaning-making capabilities of human consciousness are by talking about expression versus realization. And in the brand of work that, that, that Mary and, and Bill do in systemicism um, from Michael Halliday, there is a really important difference there because expression is one-to-one. -one. Expression is what the dog and the cat were doing, right? Uh, my food, 
you know, you know, and the food's right there and there's a threat and everything's happening right now. Realization is different. Realization takes a number of different levels, meta functions they're called often technically, but the important thing is, is that, you know, you have the sound level and then you express that, but no, it's not just that. The sound level actually turns into an entire system where there's a difference between bad and bat. And then you have phonology. And then the phonology gets wrapped up inside of what we would call syntax, right? And, you know, a bat is a noun. It has its componential structure inside of another. And these these levels just continually go up in ways that they mis misalign and are realigned. And so, which... To simplify things, just just to simplify things, it would just be basically the idea that yes, there's reference, there's agency, there's all that for the cat and the dog, but they can't really do anything about that. They can only do it. Well, well, all right. I, I, I but I, what I'd like to say first of all, um, just to to nap ahead to a very controversial topic, um, is that just as we saw in the case of Abu Ghraib. Uh, all of those very sophisticated, very detailed, very nuanced uh, things that you just talked about uh, appear to have gone by the boards. Uh, they didn't do anything in all of the thousands of words written about the thing, whereas the image of the prisoner spoke directly to people. And so when I'm saying I'm trying to get, I'm trying to, get to, the, to the essence of meaning, that's the kind of thing I, I, have to, I, I was pointing to when, when Mary and, and Bill have been talking about how to parse uh, meaning and so on and so forth. And, and here was this conundrum, you know, how did this happen? And I'm simply offering a way of thinking about it uh, that that's a little bit different. I, I, I would just add to the- I, I, would argue, I would argue though that the image is actually a realization. The technology involved, the layers involved in producing that image, it's not like we led everyone there and showed them the prisoner who was being tortured. We gave <laughs> nope. them an image. But, but I'm simply trying to address the, the reason for the impact of the image, uh, why the meaning was so powerful. And I'm, I'm suggesting it's because it's so primitive. It's, it's, it, has, it, it, it sort of leapfrogs over all of these, uh, these nuances that you're quite justifiably pointing out about human meaning and human society and human productions and saying, look, the reason that works is that it's really basic. I, I would just to throw out an even more provocative thing, and then I will shut up, Mary. Um, it's, it's, it, <laughs> it's been said many times that uh, the digital has changed everything. And within, within a frame of reference, I'm sure that's true. But I would say that an equal problem, and, and to the extent we're concerned about societal problems, is the digital has in some ways changed nothing really. That it's made uh, the, the essence of meaning not really different. The digital uh, has enabled us, for instance, to see uh, images of, of migrants coming across the southern border of the United States, this provokes in many people the very visceral reaction that all of the immigration policies in the, in the marble halls of Congress uh, hasn't done a thing to do. And so the problem is, even though the, the affordance of the, of the digital are quite miraculous and wonderful, the fact is that we're still the same primitive human beings that we were you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago uh, in, in Europe. You know, we, we agree with that in a sense, because in much of our writing, we talk about uh, the digital allowing us to return to a more synesthetic moment rather than offering something different. So that in that sense, uh, we, we agree. How, however, I, I just want to say that we also agree 
with the level of complication that's involved. You brought this up earlier. So what, what, what we've tried to do is that the paradigms for understanding meaning are very narrow and, and don't really actually help us understand the fluidity and the complexity of meaning. So what we've tried to do, maybe audaciously, in the writing of those two books is to come up with a more elaborate grammar uh, which uh, allows for that complexity and the shifts of meaning that occur in any particular context, whether it's of the past and of the future, so that we don't have static, fixed uh, uh, you know, frameworks and categories. And, we, uh, and that's even more important now than ever before. So... We're, we're... And look, where we're on the same page with you is um, is that we, for centuries, have been living in a world which has prioritised the written text yes. um, and given it um, a priority in schools. You know, literacy, for example. You know, um, you know, think about the the English class in school compared to the art class. What's higher status? What's regarded as scientifically more important? So yes, what we, we've lived in a kind of a, a Western world, particularly which prioritised. Uh, the written text. So we're on the same page with you about that. Um, the, uh, the only other thing is that, um, you know, what, uh, you know, Mary just mentioned to me now, actually, the point that what about blind people? You know, are they incapable of operating with the same degree of... Um, I'm sorry, you said blind people. I wasn't sure I heard. Blind, blind, yes. Yes, See, okay. All right. yes I beg your pardon. You argue this is foundational. What happens, you know, what happens is somehow or other we're able to transpose. The word we use is transpose. These are meaning systems which are kind of material, if you like. So you can track um, everything back to the human sensorium, which is basically image is one thing, visual. Um, hearing's another, uh, touch. And, you know, we know what the, that system's like. Um, and the interesting thing, by the way, is that in a way um, uh, we can isolate parts of it in image and isolate parts of it in speech. Um, as well. So we can isolate, you know, we can do things which only use one channel and that's that sensorium, or we can do it multimodally. And our argument is um, really not to prioritize any of it to say that we can actually move backwards and forwards across the human sensorium, across these different forms of meaning or modes of meaning, each which have their own systems. And the meaning's never quite the same, actually. There's a transmission, it's, and it's never quite the same. And what's interesting is why you want to complement one of these forms with another, which is the multimodality argument, because it involves certain certain levels of, of redundancy and reiteration, but also it involves certain forms of elaboration. So, you know, you work in neuroscience. Um, uh, can you do a paper which doesn't involve visual representations of one form or another? Um, I don't know whether you can, but maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, uh, and by the way, for us, um, uh, math is a, a elaborate form of visual representation because it's about an array of characters um, that's essentially visual so anyhow there's some thoughts and here we're turning this podcast to uh, speaking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and we cut off all the other channels we can't see you no, no, we could have done this uh, a Zoom thing but I, then I'd have had to get dressed and everything <laughs> I'm, I'm a firm believer in radio that's, yeah, that's it, it's, it's, me, it's me to be playing here <laughs> radio is a brilliant example of how it's possible to isolate one channel and isolating one channel, you know, again, in the human sensorium, it's just, it's just hearing, you know what I mean? Right. right. But, um, but, but as to your original point, I, I certainly didn't mean to give the example that, that vision was prior, uh, prior to everything else. And as, uh, of course, that famous scene in, 
Helen Keller wears, young girls, uh, she uh, can't see, can't hear everything. And her uh, caretaker at one point uh, says, uh, or the, the word water makes a sign for the word water and plunges her hands into a basin of water. Uh, so, so, and, and that led to the, you know, her awakening basically and her, her beginning to understand uh, the meaning of, of, of this communication. So anyway, so yeah, there's no, uh, it wasn't just vision. I'm just saying that vision is an example of one of the primordial uh, senses uh, which carried meaning uh, and, and in some ways still, still does. I, I wanted to ask um, slightly, uh, well, there, there are a couple of things that, that have been raised um, just before I get to my, I wanted to, to, I did want to get to my science uh, thing so I can, we can talk. About yeah, yeah, at some point, we definitely want to talk about the hypothesis. <laughs> but, but go right ahead. All right. So let me, so let me just skip ahead and uh, I'll, uh, I, I've got so many things I'd like to ask you, but okay. So what I, what I thought I could do is, is I want to talk about the hypothesis then as a, um, a mechanism of, of meaning exchange. And, and, uh, first of all, uh, to, to, um, <clears throat> Uh, to do that, uh, first of all, to emphasize that the, the hypothesis, I take it as virtually as primitive a sense uh, in a way uh, as, as a meaning itself. In other words, human beings have always, and animals in general, and when we say animals, I mean all animals are observing the world, they're detecting regularities, that's, how we, that's why we can train animals to do different things. They observe things that are meaningful to them, that is, that have impact on them. And this ability uh, that we've uh, elevated this when it comes to humans to, you know, uh, uh, an understanding which we can then uh, verbal, we can then put forward. We can then express and exchange among others. We can use uh, text. We can use sound. We can use diagrams. We can use all kinds of things to get it across. So, uh, the, so my first point was that the hypothesis is one of those very primitive built-in functions. That is, the urge to understand really is quite fundamental uh, in the same that meaning is. It takes advantage of that. And uh, so, so let me, before I go on, just give you a little example of, because hypothesis is kind of an abstract thing. So here's a little example that, uh, from, from the book. And by the way, it's also, I've got a YouTube channel and some of these little lectures are up there. If you're Bradley Alger, scientific hypothesis, we'll, we'll bring it up. But, but so here's, a, here's a, an example of a scientific problem. Um, you, uh, you, you, uh, near your house, uh, there's maybe, uh, there's a small pond. And one day you notice that the fish in the pond are, are beginning to die. Uh, you wonder why. And, uh, and you, you notice uh, that uh, uh, there's been an announcement that new factories have been come online, uh, not too far uh, uh, down, upwind rather, from your uh, place. And uh, these are heavy industries and there's smokestacks and the smoke going up into the air. And uh, you, you uh, formulate the hypothesis that uh, the fish are dying because of the acid rain. <clears throat> That's the hypothesis, right? And... Uh, the hypothesis then is, a, is an explanation for the problem we had. The fish are dying. It makes a whole variety of predictions. However, it's not easy to test. Uh, we have to know a whole lot of things. Uh, uh, it, would, it would predict, for example, that uh, the, uh, the water in the pond would be acid, uh, acidic, uh, that the fish would be sensitive to that level of acidity, and that, uh, you know, uh, therefore, if we could neutralize the acidity, the fish would be okay and uh, a variety of things like that. There is a contrary hypothesis, perhaps, because scientists should always have more than one, uh, that maybe the fish are just dying because of some parasite in the water. So we have a, an, a competing explanation. Now, what is, is so nice, I think, about the hypothesis and in the, in the way I think it fits into this discussion is, first of all, it involves uh, this participatory uh, sequence that you've talked about. There is a representation of some kind of uh, 
I, I will come back. Actually, I still think it's a fascinating topic as to whether representation has to be conscious. Uh, I'm going to claim that it doesn't. But in any case, is a representation uh, in the in my mind? I've I've come up with this hypothesis. I then uh, communicate it. Now, the hypothesis itself is is quite interesting because it is. Uh, I I put it out there, and you you mentioned that. Uh, you know, this can be in a whole variety of different uh, forms that are detectable, accessible by others, I think you said. So I put out my hypothesis in some way or other. I, I publish it. And, uh, and then someone else uh, reads, reads my hypothesis. They, they, they detect this. They interpret it. Um, I would quibble, by the way, that I, because of what you say, it's completely correct that uh, because the interpretation will never be exactly the same as the representation, rather than re-representation, I would say it's a representation in the other other person's mind, the, the receiver's mind. But what's beautiful about the hypothesis is that it, it's it got these built-in predictions. It's got essentially a, a, a set of guidelines about how to check not only the truth of what I say, but whether you have correctly apprehended my meaning, right? You can, you can do the test that you believe follows from my hypothesis, uh, do your measurements and so on, test the predictions, and then you would publish this back or you'd call me up and say, no, no, your whole, your idea is all wrong because of X, Y, and Z reasons. So there's, there's actually in this exchange of meaning via the hypothesis, uh, there is a, a built-in attempt anyway, a check and balance to, uh, to, to sort of see that the communication, uh, step, which is, which is a very fraught one, as you point out many times, um, it is actually brought into line with uh, with an actual, uh, you know, uh, uh, true communication as possible. Right, Bradley. Um, there's actually three parts to what you just said. The first part is information and data, right? The second part was your hypothesis, and the third part was testing it, right? Now, without the first part, it can't. The hypothesis just doesn't come from nowhere. Of course, I, I emphasize again and again in the book. People misunderstand that. And I'm glad you pointed it out. You you think some people were just born and they wake up in the morning and they have a hypothesis about something. It's it's always it's always about the real world, about data, about the empirical. I want to get to scientific method really because at the core of what you're saying is that our people in the academy, especially, are ill prepared for scientific method. And, and the hypothesis has dropped away for other kinds of, you know, curiosity questions, et cetera. And for those of us who are still working with trying to um, initiate people into the scientific method, in this country particularly, it's really, really hard because people come in uh, with um, uh, 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 strong opinions, uh, strong interests that tend... Uh, I found anyway amongst our students to shape a hypothesis that isn't based on a range of uh, good information. We're talking social sciences here. Yeah. Um, where the scope for is broader than what it might be with right. your asset range right. on. And the testing methodology, you know, is uneven. I agree with you. We, we, you know, it's so hard to shift students from what they get right up to the doctorate, right? What all the way to before. Because everything they do up to that point is kind of essay-like, uh, response-like, uh, opinionated, strongly opinionated. In fact, we value that before we get to the point where they've got to start thinking of the scientific method. 
So I, I, I think there's, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. It's just that I think we need all the parts. And I'm sometimes dissuade students from starting with a hypothesis. They have, to, they have to have a hypothesis along the journey, but they come in with a hypothesis determined to cherry pick the evidence to, in order to take them towards a trajectory that they are strongly committed to with a hypothesis. So I think it's, there's, I don't, I don't think the hypothesis has disappeared from scientific method across the disciplines, although your data seemed to suggest that fewer people were interested in its application. It's just that I think our uh, education system poorly prepares people for scientific method. That's, ab that, that's absolutely true. And one of the most important things uh, that gets, gets left out, and it's in fact ridiculed many times, is that people have never really uh, put all the things together. If you accept what I said in the beginning, which is that we can never really be absolutely certain beyond any shadow of conceivable doubt, then the question is, how does science move forward? And Popper's answer, Karl Popper's answer, I think is still the brilliant one because what it says is that when you test your hypothesis, you must be selecting tests which, if they come out a certain way, will disprove your hype, will falsify your hypothesis. What about when you have students who have a strong hypothesis, cherry pick the literature, have a, a process which doesn't falsify, you know? Uh, because they've misunderstood the whole purpose of the thing, right. which is to test to see, because the gold standard is not the publication or the paper or the essay, it's whether or not you're right. And the question is, how how do and, I, and this is a real problem with science in general and i'll tell you right away that we have difficulty rewarding the the thing that we want most to get which is the discovery of the truth uh this is why objectivity and intersubjective ob objectivity and reproducibility is so important because it's sort of a stand-in for the real truth if if 10 people repeat your experiment get the same results and interpret it in the same way then we say okay well that's a pretty solid looking thing it's it will accept it as a fact provisionally but of course maybe it's maybe it's wrong still uh, but, but that's that's to... precisely um if, yeah. if i may that's precisely yes. where i'm not entirely sure that the participatory process which you described coming from uh, bill and mary's work there with uh, representation communication and interpretation or however we want to call them i find that that three-way division gives a, gives us a lot of nice tools to work with but i don't really believe personally anyway, uh, especially my work helping scientists write, that you end up then by enabled by the hypothesis to check whether or not the interpretation has occurred correctly. Be be because of this, as you write, as you write the, the hypothesis is an indirect test. And, and you, you even stated, this, this really jumped out at me, by making predictions, the hypothesis reveals exactly what it does and does not mean. In that sense, there is, as you say, really just an agreement that can become upon because we live in our uncertainty whether or not we have one meaning or the other. I mean, for me, this is this is the basis. This is the drive behind scientific communication. There's no, there's no foolproof testing mechanism. Well, but it's, this, is, this is because of the weakness of the, of the hypothesis itself. If and you're, you're absolutely right in what you say. I understand and I resonate with all of the, the problems you're talking about. I've encountered them. Uh, one of the problems is specifying the hypothesis clearly enough that it is 
that the predictions follow logically from it, and the predictions, furthermore, are susceptible to really all or none tests. If the predictions cannot be tested, then really the hypothesis can't be tested. If the hypothesis makes clear predictions, as in my case of the of the the pH the, the, the acidic uh, the acid rain hypothesis with a the fish, then in fact there are measurements that you can make that will, in principle, falsify the hypothesis. And of course, it's always true that even if we don't falsify, we can't be a hundred percent sure that it's right. Uh, but we can, with the same critical attitude. And what's missing in a lot of these things that Mary has correctly pointed to, is is that the reward system somehow seems to be based on or, or, or to, to, put, to reward people simply for putting through hypotheses that they, they claim are right without, without having the acid test in mind, without having the gold standard in mind, which is that you really want the truth of it. If you do, you, you won't be likely to fool yourself into thinking uh, you're right when in fact you just uh, biased a uh, uh, selection of your data. Yeah, but what what if somebody poisoned your pond and the poison was kind of identical to what you suggested in the in, in This the is exactly why this is exactly why no one test yeah, this is exactly. I say again and again, no one test will ever test a hypothesis conclusively. One test you know, can I kinda of think we're arguing about something that we agree. We agree that how in in the scientific method there's an important role for the hypothesis. But not as a standalone. Uh, no, actually, you know, one of the important things, I, I, I just to sort of put a gloss on this as well, is that you must come to any scientific question or any question of knowledge with an interest. Lay, with an interest. Now, what Mary's saying is, um, how do you stop the interest overwhelming the investigation? Yes. Um, and I think the one very simple thing, and you kind of had, um, hinted on this, Bradley, is come with two or three hypotheses, and also. Um, what we say to our students is come with um, uh, other frames. If you argue an hypothesis is based on frame of reference, um, think about opposing frames of reference in the world. So, you know, one of the, the things about this moment, which people say, and whether the media exacerbates this or not, is that people live in alternative universes based on the same empirical reality. Whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC or watch none of them, these are alternative universes dealing with the same um, purported facts. So, you know, one of the things is, okay, if we're going to do a really good job, we have to think about what's the um, interest frame of people who oppose this. Let's say climate science. The people who um, oppose the view about climate change, um, uh, what's their ideological frame of reference and why do we need to take that ideological frame of reference seriously. So coming with a number of alternative hypotheses is a kind of an antidote to... Um, Absolutely the, right. Um, that's that's the most... Word one, it's, it's, not, it's not simply pointing out the weakness, which is what the climate scientists, uh, deniers tend to do. They say, well, this might be this or this. The fact is the hypothesis has been tested numbers of times by many, many different methods, thousands of people, and we, it is, it is the very best explanation we have for the data that we have. That's the scientific method. And, and the, the role of uncertainty in all science uh, has to be appreciated. But the check and balances is, as you, actually, as you said, I recommend that in the book. Uh, you, have a high, you have a problem, think of a hypothesis. Uh, now put that hypothesis aside, think of another hypothesis, as many as you can, because it's ultimately competition of ideas. And that is the 
the basis of the conjectures and refutations uh, notion of Popper, which is that uh, it's it's a it's a constant struggle for to find out to get to the truth, and the way to do that is to to have many different as many good hypotheses you can and test them critically one against the other and regard all of them as tentative in the but I, I would like to on the on the level of scientific communication i'm thinking you know journal publishing scientist to scientist this this is one of my major interests it's also one of the motivating factors behind this podcast so i've got just the people in front of me who i need <laughs> <laughs> to talk about this um you know, I when I listen to uh, what you're saying there, Brad, about about the hypothesis, it it makes me think because of the backdrop of uncertainty against which it works, despite the fact that you can rigorously bring in predictions that can be repeated elsewhere, and more and more people repeat them, and the interpretation, the room for interpretation becomes very minimal. But on the levels of orders of, 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 of organization, if you like, yeah, the further and further you get into the, the, the details and the fine-grained points of a scientific question, you know, an entire community, I, I, I hardly need to tell you this, an entire community of researchers will build up around these very fine-grained questions. And in the communication there, the hypothesis is a bit like if if I could make the comparison in in language, it's a bit like the clause. It's the verb and the few words around it. It can build that much, but when you need to put a few thoughts together, you almost break the grammar of any language, right? So once once you start using a couple clauses together, you, you know it's all cohering somehow because of the thought behind it. And I want to say, actually, when you're when you're really pushing the hypothesis to to discover things that are really hard to know, you know, and experts have dedicated 15 years of their career to, or something like that, then the interpretation becomes the battleground, doesn't it? Well, it, it can, but it but really, what should happen uh, if if I could say use the word should is that uh, you or someone should come up with a different uh, prediction. And sometimes a prediction is tested, as we see in physics all the time. Uh, they're testing predictions of, of uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity uh, that Einstein could not possibly have anticipated would have been an actual prediction of his theory. And so uh, often it's the case that uh, uh, we, we in, in neuroscience, with the recent uh, technological developments in, in microscopy and so on and so forth, we are now able to ask questions uh, the most basic one, I'll give you a brief uh, illustration, was uh, the neuron doctrine. It was thought that neurons were entirely separate uh, entities in the brain. This is the famous postulate of uh, Neretti, uh, Santiago Neretti, I mean, um, uh, Ramon y Cajal, uh, way back in the 1800s. And, um, and, and for, for nearly 100 years, that hypothesis seemed to be exactly correct. When people looked at neurons, they seemed to be little cells. They had a border. They had a membrane. They were separate from one another. Well, in the last 10 or 15 years, advances in microscopy and genetics and, uh, and uh, chemistry have made it possible to image molecules. And it turns out that cells are connected, neurons are connected to each other by molecular bridges. And these things are not only structural connections, but it is now known that they have functional implications. One cell twicking on its, its little molecule can influence another cell completely impossible even to imagine uh, that as uh, something that had to be tested 100 years ago. So, so you're right in what you say, but the answer is is to keep in mind the tentative nature of all this and to revisit problems as new technologies uh, make tests, new tests possible. Yes, but you revisit them in a number of ways. With a, and, and I think the hypothesis 
is is kind of uh, pregnant with so much, you know, with experiences and knowledge and information and literature and prior findings, you know, and it can, it, unless unless it's explicitly tentative, unless it's explicitly uh, linked to a very rigorous process after that, it can lead uh, those people seeking the scientific method astray. It, it has the danger of being able to do that more so than just simply asking a question. Very good. Well, then, uh, that is uh, the time we have. Closing out, though, I'd like to give each of you, of course, uh, the traditional, hey, how the hypothesis means. What did I get from today's conversation? So, um, uh, Bill, if, if you might start us off. So, look, uh, look, it's been a great discussion. And, and I, I think the, you know, obviously it's an incredibly important thing. It's kind of where interest meets the business of inquiry. Um, and it's a matter of acknowledging preceding interests and then um, curbing those interests, if you like. Um, I think Mary would caution this um, during the inquiry process. But um, so, you know, I think it's a tremendously important concept and it fits nicely with a lot of the stuff that we've been saying. Uh, yes, I mean, if I can just go to the broader issue of, you know, the scientific method and, and what its components are, uh, those of us involved in a scientific work in the academy are, committed and trying to understand it and, and, and design it and rework it. However, it, it's contested beyond the academy in very powerful ways, not only by new discoveries all the time, but also by other kinds of belief systems which oppose it. So it's, it's important to have these conversations and it's important to have processes that are rigorous in trying to find uh, what, what we're, today we've called truth. And Bradley, what would you take away? Well, the uh, I think to respond to the last part, I think it is an important uh, uh, discussion to have uh, about the role, the societal role, which is uh, you're alluding to, I think, Mary, of of the hypothesis and more generally the scientific method. I think a lot of it has to do with with education, but as you point out, there are other things involved. Uh, I, I am an unabashed uh, supporter of the hypothesis and will continue to feel that. Uh, in terms of its uh, ability to uh, conceptualize, to frame, and to communicate ideas, uh, including serving the function of the uh, social mind, which you folks have mentioned a number of times. Uh, it's a way of really focusing attention because it, of it is so specific and because it has these built-in instructions for how exactly to test it and determine whether it's correct or not. Uh, nevertheless, it's clear that there are a lot of nuances to this that uh, we have yet to grapple with. And uh, I look forward to a future conversation. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, I myself uh, would would actually latch right on to what uh, Bradley there was saying, and it interests me as to how the hypothesis works and how it plays out in its use in science as people try to communicate their findings to each other. So coming back to that issue that I was interested in as we spoke. So, uh, right, that's all we have time for today. My guests were Mary Kalanzi's Bill Cope, and today Bradley Alger. My name is Daniel Shea, signing out until next time here on All We Mean. Thank you.